Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. I'm Jason. If you're new here, uh, we are especially honored that you are here. Uh, we use the word honor with a lot of weight uh, because we believe your life is a sacred gift. Whether you're in this room or wherever else you find yourself, whatever you believe or don't believe, or even whatever you think or don't think about what we're about to do as a community, um, none of those things have any bearing for us on this fundamental idea, which is that your life is a sacred gift, and we are honored that you are here today. So thanks for being here. I want to let you know about a couple of things going on. Uh, we're going to pass some baskets around while I do that. If you'd like to make an offering, you can do that with the baskets, but there's never any pressure to give. Uh, a couple of things going on. First of all, last week, if you were here, you know that we used our gathering to pray for our city. And we did that um, by even using the room as a sort of map of the city and paying attention to different regions in the city of South Bend. And we also have some decals that map those regions in our city so that you can carry around some pride on the back of your laptop or on the back of your car or someplace else uh, where you can really celebrate where you are and what you were a part of. If you didn't get a decal for the part of the city that you claim and you'd like to, uh, just head outside the curtain after the gathering and Ryan Yazel will give you one of the decals that we've got uh, for your part of the city. Uh, so there's that. And then uh, secondly, uh, the season that comes right around the corner for us, which we call Lent. Now, uh, I don't know what your experience of Lent has been, whether you've had no experience of it or a, a good experience, or maybe it's felt like something kind of tired or worn out for you in the tradition. Well, we uh, are really excited as a community about, about learning how these seasons can help us in the way of Jesus. And Lent is specifically a season to move thoughtfully and prayerfully toward Holy Week, toward the remembrance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that'll be a part of our gatherings with practices like Eucharist. Uh, however, we also have a special offering during the season of Lent, which begins a week from Tuesday on March 12th. And on Tuesday nights during Lent, we'll offer special practice gatherings right here at Building 112. Dr. Jim Stump, a member of our community, is going to teach these gatherings. Uh, this is a chance to actually like step a little further into a practiced way of following Jesus. Uh, so you'll learn about some of the historic patterns of spending your time and your energy and using your body and your days to actually grow in the way of Jesus. And then you'll be encouraged to go back to your week and try some things and then come back to the, to the next week and learn from one another and share the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, the failures and the successes that come from those practices so that we can learn together. So I highly recommend this. This will be, if, if you've been hearing gatherings on Sunday mornings thinking, how, do I, how does this become more real in my life and not just something I hear about for a few minutes once a week? This is a great way to do that. But I would encourage you, if you're gonna do it, go ahead and plan on being here uh, every week for it. It'll be more helpful for you and for the others if the same community shows up every week to learn from each other in this practice pattern that we've got going on. So that's a week from Tuesday. We'd love to see you there. Now, let me tell you about our teacher today. I'm very excited about this. Her name is Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, Lisa is the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, an organization which helps align leaders and communities with work for the common good. Huffington Post in 2015 called her one of America's 50 most powerful religious women. That's a pretty good title. Uh, she's also a prolific writer, and uh, she's written a number of books. Uh, the one that she'll be speaking to directly today uh, is called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And I, uh, what I love about Lisa's voice is how she's challenging us to think uh, more deeply about what the Bible actually means by good news and how it has something to say to the world that we're living in right now. She traveled all the way from Washington, D.C. in the middle of our winter. I think we should give a big welcome to Lisa Sharon Harper. Thank you so much. Am I on? Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. Well, I've been to Australia about three times in the last one year. And over that amount of time, I've really, I've come to love 
um, several of the families that I've met there and, and have been working with, partnering with. And one of them is an Aboriginal family. And um, I have, uh, I've learned a lot from them. One of the things that I learned is this thing called the acknowledgement of country. It's something that they won just recently, the Aboriginal people won in Australia, um, because up until 1967, the Aboriginal people were not considered human beings by law in, in, uh, in Australia. Um, when Captain Cook, not Captain Hook, I made that mistake, don't make that mistake, <laughs> don't do that. Um, when Captain Cook landed in Australia and planted his flag, he was greeted, you know, by the nations that were living there for thousands of years before he ever got there. And they were like, hey, come on over. And he was like, I see no people here. He literally, like he literally just said, I, I see no people here. And he claimed the right of terra nullius, which is the right to claim land that has no one on it, no people on it. And so from that point until 1967, they were legally considered fauna, as in plant life. And so 1967, they gained the right to be humans, um, but they still had the this child separation policy happening until about 1995. And so, um, and, and so they've been fighting. You can say they've been fighting. And they just recently won. Uh, they just recently won the right um, to have the reality of their presence on the land before any Europeans ever got there acknowledged. It's called the acknowledgement of country. And it's something that we don't have in the United States. We don't have it. And so anywhere there is a public gathering in Australia, no matter what it is, whether it's religious or government or business, Anywhere, there has to be now, legally speaking, an acknowledgement of the first peoples of that land. So I made a commitment while I was there the last time back in November that wherever I spoke, whenever I spoke, I would always begin with an acknowledgement of country of where we are here. Because you see, that's something we don't even have here, am I right? We don't really, we don't acknowledge the first people of the lands. Most of us don't even know who the first people of the lands was. But I did a little research, and so I, what I, what I want to do is I want to just start with an acknowledgement of the first peoples of the land here, the ones that God called to steward this land. They are the Miami people, and then later the Potawatomi people from the Algonquin Nation. They were the first stewards of this land. And we acknowledge them today, and we say thank you to the elders of the Potawatomi and Miami people. We, we acknowledge that they stewarded this land for thousands of years before we got here. And the only reason we were able to be here is because they did that. And so we bless their elders, past, present, and emerging. Amen. You're welcome. And thank God. So I actually took a journey back in 2003, and this journey changed my life. It was a journey that we went over the 10 states over the course of four weeks, and it was a pilgrimage that um, really messed with me, actually, I have to say, because by the end of that pilgrimage, we had gone through two stories in my own family. We retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears for the first two weeks. 
And then for the second two weeks, we retraced the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. Now, my family, according to our oral history, had escaped the Cherokee Trail of Tears and hid out under assumed identities for the rest of their lives in Kentucky. And then another part of my family, a large part of my family, we can see by DNA, just by DNA and also by ancestry records, and I'm an ancestry fiend, it's my next book actually, I gotta tell you that right now, um, is it, we can see just from our DNA that actually we were sold into every state in the South. Somebody talked to me about family separation. So I went on this journey because I was part of a Christian ministry that was really dealing with racial reconciliation back in the 1990s and beginning to feel like it was a burden, like a burden on the gospel. It was starting to drag it, right? So we're trying to figure out what's the relationship between this racial reconciliation stuff and the gospel. So I came to the end of that summer with a, a burning question. My question was, what does this have to do with the gospel? Or even better, what does the gospel have to say to this history that my own family lived? I, I imagine myself going up to my third great-grandmother, Leah Ballard, who was the last adult enslaved person in our family. And Leah had 17 children. Somebody say 17 children. Anybody here want 17 children? Anybody? anybody? I, I like, I mean, I, 17 children is a classroom. <laughs> it is not a family. Although I have to say, some people have those 17 and, you know, God bless you. God bless you. But Leah had 17 not because she chose it. She had 17 children, most likely because she was what they called a breeder. It was her job that she did not get paid for on the plantation in Virginia, in South Carolina, to breed money for her master. So I imagine myself going up to Leah and knocking on her door and saying, great, 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 great grandma Leah, I have good news for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. But all you need to do is to pray this little prayer at the back of the gold booklet, and you get to go to heaven. And I imagined, how would Leah respond to that? Would that good news, would that, would that make her jump and shout, Hallelujah! Ah, yes! And I, I tell you, I was absolutely, I was floored because, look, I, I, I went and I knelt at the altar, at the altar. I gave my life to Jesus, 1983, 8.30 at night, somewhere between 8.30 and 9.30. I wasn't, I didn't have a watch on. The old ladies surrounded me and I wept and they wept and, and my, my life really was changed. But when I asked myself whether my own ancestors would consider this good news that I considered good news, whether they would receive it as good news, I was rocked by the reality that the, the honest, like, rock, gut-level answer was no. In fact, 
If my great-grandmom lived in the 80s, she might actually say, Lisa, are you smoking on crack? Are you smoking crack? So that propelled me into a year of depression, <laughs> and then really 13 years of searching the scripture to ask myself this critical question. What is Jesus' good news? What is Jesus' good news? Because you see, if, if the news, my understanding of the gospel, is not considered, received as good news by those who need good news the most, then maybe it's not Jesus' good news. And that drove me to Genesis. Because you see, on that journey and the orientation, we actually started in the book of Genesis. And in that book, so if you have your Bible with me, with you, <laughs> you can turn to Genesis. Um, in that book, there are a couple of theories about who wrote it. And so the context actually really does matter um, for us to understand this text. There's a couple of theories. One theory is that Moses wrote the entire book of Genesis. And the other theory is that there was a company, actually there was about four different sets of authors that over hundreds of years wrote different pieces of Genesis and compiled them into one book. Now the thing is, is that in my book, it doesn't really matter, quite honestly, where you land. I land, personally, I land on the four separate sets of authors theory. But like I said, it doesn't really matter for the purposes of our conversation today, because in any case, no matter who you think wrote this book, the context of the writing of Genesis 1 was oppression. Whether it was Moses who wrote it, who was coming out of hundreds of years of slavery, or if it was the, the priests who were coming out of Babylon, they were coming out of 70 years of slavery. In the context of war, they had been sacked by Babylon. Israel had. And they were taken from their land and taken to another land that was not their own. And they were told that by the worldview of the Babylonians, they were created to be slaves. Yes, they were. And it's in that context that this text is written. Either Moses coming out of hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, or the priests coming out of Babylon after decades of slavery and oppression. In either case, oppression is the context. And that must impact the way that we understand this text. So as I was, and I really have been doing serious study on this text for like literally more than a decade, it's been now about 15 years, I want to draw out four words in this text that for me have unlocked its meaning. And the first word is this word, tov me'od. It's not a word, actually, it's a phrase. Tov me'od. And you find it at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, at the end of the sixth day of creation, God says, the word says, God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, Tav me'od is very good. That's what that means. Tav is repeated seven times 
in the text. And on the seventh time, this word me'od is added to it. So, you know, it's like day one, tov. Day two, tov. Day three, tov. On and on until you get to the last one, tov me'od, right? Well, that's because tov, goodness, is seven is the, is the number for perfection within the Hebrew culture. So now this is, this we know now, creation is perfect. But how the Hebrews understood tov me'od, which is the closest thing they had to the concept of perfection, very goodness, how they understood tov was that tov did not live inside the thing. It wasn't located inside the thing. It was located between things. And that changes things. Because where the Hebrews who read this text originally and who wrote the text, where they believed God was most concerned was not in our perfection, but was in the overwhelming goodness of the relationships in all of creation. Think about that. So when God looks around the end of the sixth day, and that word me'od, by the way, me'od means not just, yo, that's really good. It means it's forcefully good. It's abundantly, overwhelmingly good. It's crazy, crazy, crazy good. So when God looks around, God is not saying, that's a really good walrus that I made over there, you know? Or, oh, isn't that a perfect cloud? But no, instead, what God is saying is that all the relationships in creation are tov me'od. The relationship between humanity and God is forcefully good. The relationship between men and women is forcefully good. The relationship between humanity and the rest of creation is forcefully good. No whales needed to be saved on that day. No walruses, we had no plastic straws, we had no toxic dumping, we had no need for a bracelet that's made out of, you know, plastic drawn from the ocean. Because our relationship, our relatedness with the rest of creation was tov me'od, and the relationship between all of creation, which includes us, by the way, we are not cre cre creator, we are creature, all of creation and the systems that govern us, that relationship was tov me'od as well. The way that things worked on the first page of the Bible was that all worked to bless all. Ha! Imagine that. That, that is what God is concerned with. That is what God calls perfection. Now, flip back a little bit earlier in the text, and you actually get three other words that actually are the ones we're going to focus on today for the rest of the time. And they come in the context of Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So the next word that I want to draw out is the word image. We were created in the image of God. 
It's actually the word selem, T-S-E-L-M. That word selem is simply the Hebrew version of the word that you guys actually know really well, icon, right? Everyone an icon. If you actually look up in the, in the temple when Jesus is talking, going back and forth with the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees in the temple, and there, you know, they, it's, it's the word he uses when he talks to them about the icon of Caesar on the coin. They're going back and forth with him, and they say, yo, Jesus, by the way, everybody in the Bible is from Philly. I just want you to know that. I've already come to terms. <laughs> That's where I'm from, actually, so or originally. Well, kind of first New York, then Philly. Hello. <laughs> so, but they go, yo, Jesus, you know, should we be paying taxes? It's kind of a conversation we're having right now in our own nation. And he says, show me a coin. And they say, okay, so they go, he gets a coin. And they say, and then he says, whose icon is on the coin? That's the word he uses. If he was speaking Hebrew, he may have said, whose salem is on the coin? Whose salem? And what do they say? Caesar's icon is on the coin. So then he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. So what belongs to Caesar in this equation? The coin, because the icon of Caesar is on the coin. That's how the ancients understood the icon of the king. It was a marker of where that king ruled. It was a marker of what that king owned, of the territory of that kingdom. So first question, do you ever think of yourself as being created to be a marker of where the king rules? Think about that. Because you see, Jesus then turns to them and says, but give to God what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? We do. Because we bear the Salem of God. Hmm. There's something else about this use of the word Salem in this text that's pretty amazing. Is that for the very first time in all of human civilization, you have a moment where a people is declaring that the image of God exists inside all humanity. You see, up to this moment, they had only placed the image of God inside the king or the queen, the royalty. In our nation, it might be the 1%, or it might be those who govern us. But there, in this moment, after they're coming out of slavery, when they could have grabbed that power, and nobody would have known the difference because it's the only way anything had ever been done. In that moment, they don't grab at it. Instead, they cast it out for all humanity. All humanity is made in the image of God. And in case we don't know what that means, the implications of that, they add the word radah. The word radah, and let us make them in our image and let them have dominion. That's radah. Dominion. It's been sorely misunderstood for like ever, for a long time, right? Like a lot of people have interpreted it to mean to dominate, right? Even unto obliteration. But what we find actually in this context, it literally does mean to tread down. So I can understand why people would get, you know, kind of confused. 
but actually it's in the context of the untamed wilderness. This is the story we're telling. The un, it's the very, very beginning. So to tread down does not necessarily mean to dominate. It just means to maintain the wellness of the relatedness between all of creation. To maintain the tov me'od of creation. There's an even clearer picture of, uh, of uh, Radah in Genesis 2, when God takes the human and places the human in the garden and in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it. Do you know what those words till and keep mean when you translate them from the Hebrew? They literally mean serve and protect. That's what God's kind of dominion looks like. It looks like serving all and protecting all. So there are some implications here. The first one is that very goodness looks like the overwhelming wellness of all relatedness in creation. The second one is that to be human is to be made in the image of God. Can we all agree on that? Right? Yeah, that's pretty basic in the scripture, right? First page of the Bible. The, set, the third is, if you are human, which means you are made in the image of God, then you are called by God and created with the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise dominion in the world. Now, you flip forward to Genesis 2, and you get these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is supposed to be the, that tree that you eat of, like a mango tree or whatever, and you eat and you, you live for another 50 years, you know what I mean? Just keep eating of the tree to live forever. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not just head knowledge, it's kinetic, it's in your body knowledge. It's knowing good and knowing evil. And I believe that people knew evil, these first human beings knew evil, when they did not trust God's word about that tree. When they did not choose God's way about that tree, because God said, don't eat of that tree, because the day you eat of it is the day you die. Death will enter the world on that day. Don't do it. I want you to live. I want you to experience tov me'od forever. But we see in Genesis 3 that there came that moment where they did not trust God, God's way. They did not choose God's way to fulfillment and wholeness and peace. They chose their own way. And because God is the only author of Shalom, God is the king of the kingdom, then they got what their Shalom could get them, which is broken peace. And we see it. We see it in Genesis 3. Literally, one by one, all of the relationships that God declared very good in the very beginning, tov oh, they all fall down. That's what the fall is. And in fact, what you find is that when I, I did a study of kind of like, what is at the very heart of, the, of sin? What is at the very heart of this fall? You see, one after another, First, shame enters the world. Then our relationship with God goes when we go and run from God because we don't believe that God is out for our best. And then, then 
We have animals sniping against human beings. And then we have to beat the earth to get anything out of it. And then we're driven from the garden and death enters the world. And God rips apart one of God's own creation to cover over our shame. And then brother rises up against brother and dominates, kills him. And then Lamech shows up with his two wives. Hello, somebody. <laughs> That's far from naked, unashamed, and clinging to each other. And guess what their names are when you translate them from the text? Their names are adornment and shadow. It starts here. And then, just a few chapters later, you have the Table of Nations and then the Tower of Babel. And with the Tower of Babel, you have the confusion of languages, which leads to ethnic enmity. And two chapters after that, you get the first mention of the word war. And with that, you get the first mention of the word king. And guess what the context is? The context is colonization. One king trying to exact his rule over several smaller kings. And it only took 13 chapters to get from Tov Me'od, to war. And when I did that study of what's the through line, what is the nature of sin, the very nature, the nature of sin that we see enter the world in Genesis 3 is the propensity to dominate, to exercise dominion in a way that dominates the other. It does not serve. It does not protect the other for all. It grabs at one's own peace at the expense of the other and says that's just collateral damage. So friends, can we be real? You see, there's another implication here. The other implication is that we live in a world where we have, we have crafted our world according to a lie, according to the lie of human hierarchy, according to the lie that domination is okay, according to the lie that God has placed some people over others. And that is actually not the case. And you know, we actually, we can trace this lie back to Plato. So in, in Western, in Western uh, context, and it's not just the lie of domination um, Plato specifically is about one of the key um, constructs of domination in our, on, our, our, uh, <laughs> on our land, the construct of race. Back in 360 BC, Plato wrote in his book, The Republic. And in The Republic, he said that there's this thing called race. Can we go there? Do I have permission to go there? Can we go there? All right. Because we're really, I mean, I really am going to go there. You okay? You good? Okay, okay, good. Okay, good. Thank you. Good. Okay, good. I think, I think honestly, y'all, we need to have this conversation, especially right now, especially in the church. Okay? So let's go there. Okay. And I promise you'll be done soon. <laughs> Plato had wrote this book called The Republic, and in The Republic, he was pontificating about how the polis should live together, how the republic should work. And in book eight, he talked about this thing called race. And in this thing called race, what he said was that race is different people groups being made of different metals. 
Some people are made of gold, others are made of silver, others are made of copper and tin, and whatever metal the people group is made of, then that metal determines how that people group will serve the republic. Get it? Now, the thing is, it's arguable whether or not there was hierarchy in his structure. But what we can see at the very least is that in Plato's understanding, and it's one of the first like foundational understandings of this thing called race, it is created in order to order society. You get it? Race was created in order to order society. It is not from God. It is from Plato. And then it didn't take long to get actual hierarchy. You had Aristotle come along, and Aristotle actually created this thing called Western supremacy. His pontification was that Western culture is supreme above all others, right? And then you get from there a few hundred years later, a few thousand years later, you get um, the Pope. 1452. The Pope in 1452 has an explorer come to him, and the explorer says, hey, Pope, by the way, also from Philly, right? So, hey, Pope, I'm going to go exploring, and I need a blessing. And the Pope says, hey, I'll give you a blessing. In fact, I'll do you one better. I will give you the right to claim the land that you come to if you find that it's not civilized, right? So the Pope says, or the explorer says, hey, great, no problem. And the Pope adds a really a goodie. He says, and you can enslave the people. So now we've gone from philosophy to theology. And it's that theology that is based on a bad read of this text because it says that only the civilized are called to exercise dominion in the world. But we know from the text that all humanity was created to exercise dominion. And by the way, who are you to, talk to define who is civilized? Hello, somebody. Can I, just, can I just get a witness? Right? Who are you? And, by, and you know, it's not like they gave him a PowerPoint presentation to define what civilized means. <laughs> No, instead, we kinda, you kind of get it, right? To be civilized means to build with stone instead of brick or straw, even though they have no stone. Um, it means to have a written language that Europeans can understand. And it means, um, it means dancing through space, not in space, right? That's because when you dance in space, then you're not civilized, right? So, so you, had, you had that explorer go out, and he discovered some land that people had been living on for thousands of years. And he said, I hereby claim this for the throne because these people are not civilized. They are not called by God to exercise dominion on this land, right? And so that is how we got North America and Central America and South America and, and New Zealand and Australia and all of colonized Africa and Hong Kong and Indonesia and Vietnam. It is how we got the world as we know it today. And it's all from a bad read of Genesis 1. And flip forward and you get Linnaeus, the botanist, 1746. And the botanist in 1746 says that there's this um, thing called scientific Science, basically scientific race, right? Oh, well, he's the guy who discovered kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? And so they thought, oh, okay, well, if it works with fauna, certainly it should work with humanity. So let's try it. And who does he put on top? He puts himself on top. White Europeanus is what he calls it. And then under that, who do you think is next? 
red Americanus, isn't this interesting, right? And then after that is yellow Asiatus, and then on the bottom is black Africanus. Very scientific, right? No. And yet it only took 41 years to go from that to the three-fifths compromise, where now we've gone from philosophy to theology to science to law. And the three-fifths compromise declared that people of African descent are only three-fifths of a human being. And that was a bargain because the northerners didn't want them to be human at all. And then it was only three years after that that you had the very first census. And on that first census, the only race that's listed is white. And in that same year, they have the Immigration Act of 1790 where they declare explicitly that the only people who can become naturalized citizens in the United States are white men. Now, what are the theological implications of that law? Because you see, the law is just the secular Bible. It's supposed to tell us what is just and true, right, in our land. It's what the people have decided is just and true. Well, the people decided at that time that it's just and true that only white men were created by God to exercise dominion because that is what naturalization does. It gives you the right to vote. Friends, that is the struggle we've had ever since. And so I ask you, well, I share with you, the, the last implication of this is that when we, in our conversations about how the polis should live together, which is politics, I mean, politics at its heart is simply that conversation about how the polis should live together. When our politics crushes or eviscerates, or twists, or mangles, or exploits, or excludes any people or people group from the call to exercise dominion, then we are also crushing, excluding, exploiting, mangling, twisting, even erasing the image of God from earth. Now consider this. Consider that in the, the way that the ancients understood the image of the king was that not only that it's where the king rules, but also how, the, how the, the images of the king were bearing in that kingdom, whether they were flourishing and well. It was supposed to be an indicator of the health of that kingdom. But where there were images of the king that were toppled, that were crushed, that were eviscerated. You knew that there was war against that kingdom in the kingdom. You knew that that kingdom was at war. Now what if, what if when we govern in ways that crush or topple or eviscerate or cover over the image of God in others, in our land, what if when we do that, we are also declaring war? on God. What will it take? What will it take for us to lay down our arms against God? What will it take for us to govern in ways that bless the image of God and the call and capacity of all 
to exercise dominion. What will it look like? I believe it will look like Luke 1. I believe it will look like that moment in Luke where the writer says, in the days of King Herod, in the days of a despot, in those days, the king of the kingdom of God broke into the world in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God. And I believe that it'll look like Luke 4 when Jesus shows up in the synagogue and says in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. And friends, this was not written in Starbucks. This was written in the context of oppression. Those who wrote it were colonized people. Jesus was a colonized person speaking to colonized people. And I believe that we see it in Matthew 25 when Jesus says, if you do whatever you do to the least of these, you also do to me. And I believe we see it in Acts and we see it in Galatians and we see it in Ephesians. And when we get to Galatians 3, 26 and 27, we see it in baptism. Because it's here in the first baptismal liturgy where, where Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. All of these are power distinctions. All of these, they are all, they, they're how we've been taught to see each other in the hierarchies of human belonging. But when you get baptized, when you go under the water and you come up, you have been given the eyes of Christ. You have been given eyes that only see one thing, the image of God in all. The call of all to exercise dominion in the world. So if I were now to go to my third great-grandmother and I were to say, great-great-grandmom, I have good news for you, this is what I would say. I would say, the king of the kingdom of God has broken into the world in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And I also would have good news for Leah's master. And it comes in the fourth word. That fourth word, demuth, it's likeness. It's not about we are just like God. It's actually supposed to be a distinction. We are like God, but we are not God. So I would go to Leah's master and I would say, oh, great grandma, Leah's master, I have good news for you. You're not a master. You are simply human. You, you can lay down your arms against God. You can stop striving to control and define all and everything. You can join hands with the rest of creation and simply be created and simply be human and exhale. Come on, we're having a party over here. It's pretty good. That's 
good news. May it be so. May those who have had the image of God in them cursed, may they rise full into their full dignity and call to exercise dominion in our world. And may those who have strived against God, warring for supremacy with God, lay down their arms and join the community of creation. And exhale. Amen. Amen. I don't know a better word for a community that wants to live by the mantra, everyone an icon, than uh, what Lisa just brought us. So Lisa, thank you again. Thank you for uh, making the trip and giving us your heart and your voice. We're grateful. Uh, let me say again, if, if you're like, man, I want to hear more, I want to learn more, uh, her book, The Very Good Gospel, is really helpful to go a little further into her message. And that's available uh, outside the curtain there after the gathering. Uh, if you're able, you stand to your feet. And as you do that, let me just... Uh, a little bit of traffic control. On your way out today, if you're parked inside the gated parking lot area, please leave the other end of the parking lot. Otherwise, I think we'll have a bit of a collision uh, at the gate as the new crowd comes in for the 1145. Uh, next week and throughout the season ahead, join us for Lent. It'll be sacred and really special, and you don't want to miss that. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you soon.